Hello and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. Today we're recording from the city of Jena and we're speaking with one of my colleagues here, Dr. Oli Ackerman. She is a research fellow and lecturer at the Institute for Islamic Studies at Freie Universität in Berlin. Welcome to the podcast, Oli. Hi, Nir. Thanks for having me. So today we are going to go a bit further afield in the Ottoman Empire. We are going to speak about a manuscript archive, a sort of secret manuscript archive of the community of Alawi Boras in the city of Baroda in Gujarat. And we're going to talk to Ali about her research there as a sort of participant observer, and especially about the social life of manuscripts and archives and collections, and how we can research those uh, in many different ways and understand them more than just a few texts or a few little pieces of material evidence, but as a whole world of social relationships that we need to pull out as historians and anthropologists. So, Ali, welcome again. And I wanted to maybe start this podcast with an interesting statement you just made as we were talking. You said that this was a sort of accidental anthropological research. What do you mean by that? How did what? What's the story behind this yes, archive? Yes, the uh, uh, accidental. Um the accidental anthropological experience. Yeah, that's how I often describe my field work. So um, I was trained as a classical philologist and codicologist in Holland. I'm actually Dutch and at Leiden. And well, the way you were taught to work with manuscripts, you know, in an academic institution or a traditional library is very different than mm-hmm. what I faced in the field, so to say. And so what happened was the following. I I did my PhD um, in Berlin, and I wanted to make a critical edition on one of of a medieval um, Ismaili text. Mm -hmm. Um, That fascinated me because there was a lot of secrecy around it. However, the problem was that my research was hampered several times because access to these texts actually turned out to be very difficult. Um, And at some point I got so fed up because I had no project that I thought, uh, well okay, <laughs> I will just go to India myself. I knew that there were still these communities known as the Boras who stored these manuscripts in their archives. And I knew that it was fairly impossible because it's sort of uh, in the field of she studies a myth, whether these archives exist or not. But I thought, okay, I will just go to India myself and see um, if I can get access. It probably will not you know, work. But then that will sort of be part of the story of this narrative of of secrecy. And yeah, against all odds, that's not what happened. (laughs) (laughs) And what happened was I went to to the city of Baroda, which is the headquarters of the Alawi Boras. And I got in contact with the uh, sheikhs there, with the Dai, who is considered the infallible vice-regent of the hidden imam of the community. And he's the custodian of the library. Of, or the Khizana, as they, as they call it. And yeah, I arrived in Baroda sort of out of the blue, and they had no idea what to do with me. I'm, I'm convinced that the fact that I was a woman, that that played a central role in the story mm. of access in the end. So they felt they had to take me in because I was there all by myself. And then what happened was that I accidentally completely went native, quote unquote, <laughs> which is, you know, it was quite, I'm also, I'm trained as an Arabist, I'm not a Saudationist, so it was a crazy experience. But they took me in, and after a few weeks of gaining the trust of the community and actually participating in all 
sort of communal rituals and so forth, which was amazing because the Boras still practice taqiyah today. And what is taqiyah for those of us that don't ah, know? Ah, yes. So taqiyah is that idea that you dissimulate your religious identity of being Shi or being mm. Ismaili to the outer world. So this came forth from this idea of the Ismailis being very much persecuted, especially also in the context of South Asia. So it's interesting. On the one hand, the Boras would never tell you anything about their religion. Like mm -hmm. It's a very close community. It's a small universe in a way. So they have their own doctors and hospitals and schools. So you do not interact with anyone outside of the community. Mm. And I always call this sort of, there is this oath of allegiance that believers take. So there is this thing which is, like a Bora Bar Mitzvah in a way. So it's when, you know, as an adolescent at some point you become grown up and there is this big ceremony mm -hmm. for that and you swear to your allegiance to the Dai, which means that you can never ever talk to anyone about your religion to the outside world. And the Dai is the leader of the community. Yes, okay. he is the leader of the community and he's also a royal. So he's the head of this of this royal family. And yeah, they're considered Sayyids, so their lineage goes goes back to the Ahl al-Bayt, so to Imam Hussein and so forth. Mm -hmm. The Alawi Boras are just one of the Ismaili communities existent in the world today, right? Yeah, that's correct. Right. So there are the Arakhani Ismailis who follow the Arakhan and who believe the Arakhan is their Imam, who is alive and present in this world. And then there are the Boras who believe that their Imam, Imam Tayeb, went into hiding in the 12th century. So the Dai is sort of the only person on earth who is in contact with the hidden Imam. Mm. So, so far we've, you've explained to us that there's a small community of Ismaili Alawi Boras. They're in the city of Baroda. You show up there. But how did you end up becoming part of or getting access to this manuscript archive? Yes, well, that, that actually took a long time. Right? And that's how also the, the archival work or the archival field work turned into anthropological uh, field work because it took me months of negotiating, drinking tea with the Dai, with the sheikhs, before I could access the space, the physical space of the archive and mm -hmm. see its manuscripts. But I think what you just pointed out, sort of this marginalizedness of the Boras as an Ismaili Shi Muslim community also in India, was crucial to the question of access. Mm. Because so the Dai and the other sheikhs, they're very much aware of what is written about them in academic circles. And they felt that they were really underrepresented in all these, you know, these textbooks on Shiism or Ismailism. Mm. So when I arrived, they they thought, ha, this is perfect. We have an academic here who can write down our history. So they sort of gave me this funny title of court historian of, of, mm -hmm. the, of the royal house, so to say. And that's how our interaction started. Now, it took months of, of negotiation before I could actually see the manuscripts. But what happened is that, happens is that these Bora communities, all Bora communities are, are basically, so they're ruled by these royal families, right? By the Dais. What happened is, happens is when a Dai dies, it <laughs> usually leads to a lot of havoc because mm -hmm. it's a secret. So the one who should follow the Dai, who is the Mansus, it is not in the open. So nobody knows, which also, it always leads to a lot of chaos. And it leads to the fact that these libraries often become divided between the different families. Mm. So it's like this classic tale of the royal household and this, you know, these struggles about power and manuscripts are very important for that. So when the sheikhs found out that, you know, I was a colleagueologist, 
what they wanted me to make a catalog of their collection because the problem is with the secret archive if you don't know what is there then you cannot also check if it's still there right and mm -hmm. people in the community couldn't access it it's only the highest clerics who can access this so they thought ah, it's perfect we have this young lady here she can catalog our collection so in theory that sounded really great because that would give me access also to the manuscripts because mm. if you you know you have to scrutinize them and measure them however it was super complicated because again my question of gender came in because they said well you can uh, you can access them but you cannot touch the manuscripts mm. and i was like why can i not touch the manuscript and they said well it's because you're ritually impure you know uh, once a month for one week you're ritually impure and that's why women in our community cannot access the the space of the archive or cannot touch the manuscripts mm -hmm. but the problem was that no one else could access them either and i could not also be left alone with someone who could with a man as an unmarried woman so yeah. it's very complicated so that's how i learned and this is also i think where the anthropological part comes in that even though certain things are so sacred right this is a tradition that is so sacred and also the materiality of script right written by holy men but i learned that even my period because that's of course what was the problem was negotiable just mm. very i mean as a classical philologist, these are not things <laughs> that you're sort of prepared to the, you know, to negotiate. But in the end, I negotiated that for three weeks a month, I could catalog these texts, I could touch them, I would sit in the office of the Dai on the floor, measuring uh, texts and dating them. And for one week a month, I couldn't. But this went very far, because that's, I mean, I also had to prove that I had my period and well, it was <laughs> kind of extremely intense field work. But yeah. th the good thing is that it really pushed me out of my academic comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Because at the beginning, sort of getting access to the community was my way to get access to the manuscripts. Right. But in the end, it was actually the other way around. So I learned that I mean, the community was not the means anymore to get to the manuscripts. It was the only way to actually understand the manuscripts mm. and, and sort of the, uh, the archive and, and how all of this worked. So, so far you've described kind of how you've negotiated uh, with this community access to the manuscripts, but you, they've also, they want certain things from you. You know, they want you to be their court historian. They want you to expose their story to the rest of the world. And you've somehow gained access to these manuscripts that very few other people, both, even within the community, have seen at all. So I just want to ask this question, just because I think maybe this is something maybe on the minds of our listeners or kind of at the approach of a traditional historian, which is, well, what are these manuscripts? Can you even talk about them on this podcast? Right. Yeah, it's a question that I often get. In fact, it's quite funny because one of my students um, recently said in class when I talked about this topic, she said like, well, but I don't believe a word of what you just said, because if these texts are so secret, how can you actually access them? It's all not true. In right. Way. So I get these questions a lot. And I think it's a very legitimate question, because that's how we usually also tackle texts, right? That's how we, but that's sort of this idea again of being forced out of your academic comfort zone in, in, in my case, in this field work was also that while I was working in the archive day in, day out, I realized that maybe the content of these texts or what is the oldest text, because that's something that especially people in the field of Shia studies are really interested in, wasn't maybe the most fascinating part of the research. That's mm. what was definitely the question that I was interested in when I went to Baroda. 
but my perspective of studying text changed so much. I mean, if I know what is in the text and I know what the oldest one says and I cannot tell you. <laughs> but I, it's, it's not that I, I... I also really believe that that is not the most fascinating thing that right. I sort of observed. But you're also respecting the wishes of the yeah. community to keep these texts right. secret, right? You know, Absolutely. He, and it was also, of course, a pragmatic move, right? Mm -hmm. I couldn't write about the contents of these texts. But I think this is also something that others have already done, right? Yeah. So these, this whole tradition of Neoplatonism and Ismaili texts and esoterics, that, that wasn't a new contribution, I think, to the field mm -hmm. in a way. But what I realized after months and months of cataloging these texts, I mean, at the beginning, I didn't see it, right? What they meant or why they mattered or how these texts actually worked. But at some point, I was wondering, observing all the different mm -hmm. uh, communal gatherings, I asked the sheikh, so I've seen where you, where you pray, I've seen where you, people get married, but where is the Sharia court? Because Ismaili law is still practiced by the Boras. It's, it's a very important thing in daily life. So who are actually the Qadis and, you know, where do you go if you have a dispute? And then the sheikh, he, he looked at me and he laughed so hard and he was like, Oli, don't you get it? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean don't you get it? I am the Qadi. I am the Qadi and, you know, the space of the archive where you've been working day in, day out, being surrounded by people from the community. This is the Sharia court. This is where it all happens, right in front of you. And they really, they made so much fun of me. It was quite... <laughs> Hilarious, but I was also, I felt so embarrassed because I thought, oh my God, I've been cataloging day in and out and I completely missed everything, the whole world around around me basically and, and what is what is happening in front of me. Yeah. And I just couldn't make that link between text and community because, you know, the way I was taught about it, there are such separate realms in a way, right. but they're not. And, and then I really started to pay attention actually of what happened around me. Mm. which is perfect because I don't speak a word of Gujarati. So people would come with their most dramatic personal problems to the sheikhs. And, and I couldn't understand the word, but I could observe what happened and the role that these texts and the manuscripts that were supposed to be so secret that no one could see them, mm. that texts were taken out of the cupboards and used for um, legal disputes, for healing purposes, for all kinds of things. And I think that's also the crux of how it works to have an archive that you cannot access. Mm. And texts that are secret, you need to know that they're secret and that they exist. Right. Otherwise, it doesn't work, right? That's sort of the psychological construct in a way. And that's how my entire way of looking at text completely changed. And this idea of no community without text and no text without community. The, the fact that we have these texts, it's not a coincidence, right? And that's how I got into this idea of social code ecology. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm speaking with Ali Ackerman about this very interesting social life of social lives of manuscripts in the archives of the Alawi Bora community in uh, Baroda and Gujarat. And so far, we've kind of heard this fascinating story of how Ali has uh, inserted herself and uh, negotiated herself into this community and realized that the story that she's actually looking for is not the texts and the words inside the in, inside the manuscripts, but all the different social relations that come across this. And 
And you introduced this word, social codecology. What did you mean by this? First, what is codecology and how, how do you make it social? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a very good question. Yeah, what is codecology? That's something that is difficult to answer. <laughs> it's something that I've been trying to figure out. Well, the way I learned it traditionally is that codecology is sort of the study of uh, book covers, papers, and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not what I mean with codecology. So what I mean with codecology is really studying manuscripts holistically. So that means their content, that means their material, um, um, features, mm -hmm. I mean script, and so forth. But I got to this idea of social ecology through a professor of mine, Leon Buskens, who provocatively once wrote that in order to really understand texts and collections and archives, mm -hmm. we should practice ecology as a social science. And, well, that's, that's sort of what happened by accident in Baroda, right? So can you give us some examples? You gave us this wonderful example of you realizing that the Cadi court was hap was occurring yeah. as, as you were trying to do your research. You were just oblivious right. to it for like months. Yeah. But how, how did they use these manuscripts when they took them out? Right. Well, for instance, what I observed a lot was, so it's not always clear when, you know, people, so they go to the Dai, right? Yeah. And the Dai can be a Qadi, but he can also be uh, a doctor, actually, and he can be many things in one person. So what I observed is that um, people would come to the Dai to have their children blessed or mm. with marital problems or with health problems. Mm -hmm. Or, for instance, women would come to the Dai and they would want to know whether they're pregnant because a pregnancy test wasn't available. Yeah. Right. And then what happened was that the Dai would take out a manuscript, which is a super botany, esoteric text, right, that people cannot access. However, he is not using the text and also not the, the book itself, but the paratext. So whatever notes are written in the margins. Hmm. And he's using these. So that's one of my favorite type of paratexts, which I call the pregnancy planetary pie, which is, it looks... Pregnancy planetary, <laughs> planetary pie? pie, right. Which looks like, you know, this pie with different chunks and they, they contain all the planets, okay, of okay. the universe. So the Dai takes out this manuscript and the woman says, I might be pregnant or not and I want to know if it's a boy or a girl or a girl. So then she needs, she recites the Fatiha and then puts her finger randomly on the, the planetary pregnancy pie. And depending on whether, you know, the finger ends on Mars or Jupiter, you know, the die can say, well, you're pregnant or not, mm. and so forth. It's a boy or a girl. Um, and it's just an example, I think, where the social codicological approach of, on the one hand, making use of sort of the hands-on codicological work, but asking very social questions, it's a good example because on the one hand, you see it in the paratext, right? You can trace these practices yeah. in descriptions, in, in uh, illustrations. But I also observed how the, the books were literally taken out of the cupboards. Um, and this, I think, would not have worked if this would have been on a printed piece of paper. Yeah. The idea is also that these paratexts were written by generations of Dais who are considered ma'asum, right? So they're considered infallible. So whatever they do, whatever they say, whatever they write, that is sacred. And it's sort of the truth in a way. So that's an example. So there's the, para the paratextual elements so this little pie chart yeah. that they used to determine pregnancy was on a, a more secret yeah. old manuscript. But Absolutely. it's kind of it, the this pregnancy pie chart plant, sorry, Pregnancy planetary pie. <laughs> yeah. 
derived its power because it was on this manuscript, right? Right, because it was on this manuscript, because it is part of this tradition, but also because of the script itself, mm. right? This, so this marginal note was not written by a chaiwala, but it was written by a dai. Mm. And therefore also that, that marginal note... Uh, starts to have its own social life mm -hmm. because the current die would take that out and say well this is a marginal note made by my grandfather right and he continues to use it and it has to be in this manuscript it cannot be just on a note and again it's also again the psychology of it's a secret manuscript yeah. so you see parts of it but not everything so this leads me to a question uh that's in the back of my mind is that people are touching these manuscripts they're constantly using them whether for healing or to determine pregnancy or other sorts of disputes and of course manuscripts break apart yeah manuscripts inevitably fall apart just like any book and so how if so much of the sanctity of them is derived from generations of dais using them and writing them, what happens when they fall apart? How do they get rewritten? What is their life cycle? Right. Well, maybe we start with their demise because that's something that I observed a lot in Baroda. Because mm -hmm. again, this is another thing that the philologist is sort of, or the codicologist is faced with being in Baroda, I was there in the monsoon season. Mm -hmm. It's hot. It's super rainy. It's the most terrible climate for for manuscripts, right? Right. Many of the manuscripts we have from South Asia are written with uh, wormholes. Absolutely. Yes. And it's super violent <laughs> what happens. So that's also how I sort of became one with the manuscripts at some point because I was working with them so intensely that the termites in the manuscripts would, you know, also start to, uh, yeah walk on me in a way <laughs> but anyways yeah what happens in these sort of violent anti-manuscript climates is that the lifespan of a manuscript is much shorter yeah i mean there are all kinds of problems humidity but termites is basically the biggest problem and um, there are termite plagues that sort of they come to your house and they eat half of the furniture away in one morning and also wow. libraries right so this is really also an interesting i think new field that we should look into like local preservation techniques because mm -hmm. communities like the Boras, they don't have money for fumigation rooms and whatnot. So the protection of manuscripts, it's important. And I also could see that very nicely in the paratext. So this idea of yak kabikaj, which I think we know from... Why don't you explain it? Because I'm sure most of our listeners don't know okay. who kabikaj is. So yak kabikaj is something that I think is quite common also in Middle Eastern manuscripts. It's written in the margins. Yeah, right. usually I've seen it on the, the front page of a manuscript. The front, yeah, the first fly leaves and so forth. So the way that I learned it is that kabikaj was actually a very bitter plant that uh, was growing in the Middle East and was put between manuscript leaves mm. so that the termites wouldn't eat it. However, in other contexts, for instance, in South Asia, where these plants were not available, mm -hmm. um, just the invocation of ya kabikaj, or kabikaj, the name of the plant, would be enough to scare away the termites. Oh, interesting. I heard that he was like the cockroach king. Yes, exactly. Was... That's, the <laughs> that's, that's the story that I know from the Bora context. Okay. That, um, yeah, that the kabikaj, that's sort of, that's also the social life of one particular paratex, mm -hmm. right? So in the context of South Asia, that it's not just a plant, but that the kabikaj is the king of cockroaches, which is so scary to most termites that if you write it in a book, that termites will stay away. Mm. However, in, in daily life, this is unfortunately not what happens. So a lot of manuscripts um, are eaten alive. 
by termites. And um, the sheikhs actually told me about this incident where this termite plague ha ate half of the library, which wow. is, of course, it's it's a nightmare, right? Because it's sort of the sacred capital of the community. And that's also what I argue in my forthcoming book, that without this library collection, I mean, it's it's not only the, the, the past and pre uh, present of the community, but it's also... Uh, in an eschatological way, you know, it has to do with the continuation mm -hmm. of the community. So what happened was, you cannot throw away these texts, of course, right? So yeah. leaves that are eaten and stuff like that. It's basically the same idea of a Geniza, that you cannot throw away sacred texts. And it's a funny story. So the, the sheikh actually said, well, you know, we couldn't throw them away, but you actually drank them. You don't know this, but you drank them. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so they said, yeah, yeah, we dissolved it in the water tank of the, of the Jamat Khana, of the mosque, so that believers would drink the water and would gain barakah, basically, by drinking it. So that's, that's an interesting example how sort of the social life of these texts continues even after the material demise of, mm. of manuscripts. Right. Yeah. So, and there are all kinds of, of, of rituals of how <laughs> to dispose of these texts. So that's the end, the end point in a way. But interestingly, when, when materially a text dies, to put it like that, the contents of the, the sacred truths that are in these texts, they there are these esoteric uh, truths that sort of flow, right? So it's about the transmission of knowledge in a yeah. way. So the the Dai and and his sons, who are the only ones who actually have embodied these texts, embody these the, the content through copying the manuscripts, right? Which brings me to how manuscripts are brought into being. So so through scribal practices through transcribing these manuscripts, that's how the esoteric truths are embodied. Mm -hmm. So so the Dai always says it goes through the qalam, the pen, to the qadr, basically. And and um, this is very important because um, the, the Dai needs to embody this knowledge because um, the Ismailis believe that after they die, that their souls go to different realms in the mm. afterlife, which it's a very complicated story, but basically the more souls are led to the different realms in the afterlife, the faster the hidden imam will come back. On okay. So it's crucial that manuscripts are copied and that the sheikhs can embody the content of these texts. Yeah, and then, then that brings me to manuscript copying, which is how one manuscript is turned into another, basically. So that's the birth of, of how that works. Shall so I? They, mm -hmm. they, they copy them throughout the period, so there's always multiple copies of one. Yeah, uh, in an ideal world, yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> but the problem is that there are only three sheikhs who govern the entire uh, community, so it's a race o'clock uh, against the clock, basically. Um, but yeah, so they always prepare several copies of manuscripts, and on uh, top of all their other duties, as yes, healer exactly. and judge and community leader and absolutely prayer leader. Yeah, so it's very tough, and also the manual copying itself is very tough. Um, and I know this because I participated at the end of my field work. I was very honored. Um, the sheikhs actually came up with the idea: Why don't you, in, in order to really understand our scribal culture? why don't you participate in, in it yourself? Uh, which was a great honor because as an outsider, a non and also as a woman, I mean, yeah. this is not done. And so, um, I mean, I call this participant, participant philological uh, participation, observation, so to say. So this is the ultimate 
um, the ultimate example, I think, right. of social codicology, right? How anthropology on the one hand and codicology, how it comes together. And manuscript copying is seen as a jihad, which is quite, I mean, as in the, the big jihad, right? So, so the quest for self-betterment of some sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, exactly. And But really with this idea, it's suffering, right? So mm. copying a manuscript by hand is extremely difficult. It's very, it's painstakingly hard because you cannot just copy a man. You know, you have one base manuscript and then you have the other manuscript. So you have to fold the papers. You have to... Uh, make the lines with yeah. these ruling boards and then the copying starts but you cannot just copy there are rules there are regulations you have to be in a specific uh, state of mind right so mm -hmm. you have to go through rituals of uh, ritual purity so your mind has to be ritually pure your body has to be ritually pure it's in in the context of south asia so there are certain days that are auspicious for copying and others that aren't and so forth. And so that's, so there are scribal practices and there are scriptural practices. So you cannot just copy. There are very strict rules to whether to split a word, to inling, um, to make certain words longer and so forth. And, and then the die, of course, is everywhere in the manuscripts because he corrects it. He gives an ijaza. He puts the basmala at the beginning to authenticate it and so forth. So, and then they get stored. And uh, and then they get used. stored. And I actually, after copying an entire manuscript, which is so hard, because you copy it on the floor, right? It's, it's really a tough exercise. Um, I wanted to donate my manuscript to the library, which is how it is usually done. Yeah. And, and then the die said like, no, Oli, this was your, this was your little jihad, so to say. You keep the manuscript as a talisman, always keep it, keep it close to your heart. And yeah, you take it home and it will protect you. Wow. Yeah. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm speaking with Ali Akerman about the secret arch manuscript archives of the Alavi Boras and the social life of manuscripts, more importantly, and we've really had a fascinating, fascinating interview so far, looking at all the social relations that emerge out of manuscripts, the way that they're used. As a historian, I think this is really important to keep in mind, because when we, for those of us that use uh, archival documents or manuscript books, we have to look beyond just the content and look at all the different usages that are possible. But this also brings me to the kind of question that I have as I was listening to you speak. You had a community there to show you to observe and to understand how they used it. Right. How do we, maybe as historians, who are dealing with communities that have long since passed, flesh out that social life of manuscripts to bring uh, out the social codicology that you've put forth? Right, yeah, that's something that I'm really exploring at the moment myself. Um, and it's something that I think is already happening in our field, no? I mean, the study of manuscripts, whether it's libraries, collections, or texts themselves, manuscript cultures, is really exploding at the moment, which is wonderful. But I really like what John Dagenais, uh, in his um, Ethics of Manuscript Reading, I think it's called, Mm -hmm. what, how he poses it. Because he says we need to move away from this idea of, you know, the text as a text and focus more on the rough edges, 
of manuscripts. And with that, I mean, it's a very broad given. So it can be marginalia, it can be paratexts, mm -hmm. but it's also sort of the manuscript world around a text, right? So it's not only materially, but how do you reconstruct that? And I think that that's a really good starting point. And I think paratexts, and that's also happening at the moment, is a fascinating and a really rich field where we can reconstruct a lot on scribal practices. Uh, on how libraries work, I mean, through catalogs, through lists. Uh, that, that's definitely something that is happening. But I think what we should also include in our work more is the archival work that we all do, right? We all go to the Suleimania with Darul Kutub uh, libraries, but incorporating that as well in our work, so the fieldwork mm. stories. So being more self-reflexive about the way we absolutely, go about yeah, and research. I think positionality, and I mean, I would even go as far as to say that gender, which I think in in my case has mm -hmm. been a decisive factor, to even even put that in, uh, and that's of course, well, it's a very anthropological way of of bringing that in, but that is, I think, what makes the codicology social. Okay, well, on that note, thank you, Ali, for this wonderful interview, and I think you've really shown how you can take a challenge of not being able to maybe answer a traditional research question or find that text that maybe all of us might be looking for when we do fieldwork and kind of transform it into a really exciting new research question. And for those of you that want to know more, uh, you can read Ali's forthcoming book, tentatively titled The Ethnography of Manuscripts and Their Social Lives. And you should also come and check out the short bibliography that she'll provide on the podcast website. Thank you again, Oli, for coming. Thanks a lot, Neil.